God, we want you to know that we love you and we're here today with great expectation with the things that we're going to hear from your word. And, and Lord, we look forward to this week ahead of us of thanksgiving and that uh, we can, even in the brokenness of things, Lord, and the, the heartaches that we have, that we can be thankful because we know that uh, eternity is ahead of us. And it's all because of what uh, your son Jesus has done for us. And that is great and mighty things. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Deanie, while you're still up here, stick around for just a minute. I want you to lead us in one more time of prayer. The things that we're going to talk about today are very serious. And so I want us to ask God to limit the distractions and make us all attentive listeners to what we need to hear and what we need to share. So lead us in one more prayer, would you? Pray along with me. Father, uh, we are here today, God, we expect to hear some things from your word that is going to stick in our heart and our mind and our soul. Mm -hmm. God, some, some things that we can share with others and that we can remind ourselves about. Um, because sometimes we get wobbly and we doubt. So help us, God. And each one of us here this morning, you know what we need to hear. You know what needs to come across our ears and settle in our minds and our hearts. So we're asking you for that, God, this morning as your word is declared and your word is wonderful and it's what we need. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deanie. I don't know who said this. The quote was found in a, a book titled Living a Life of Hope. It's really good. Take a look at this. The hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance for the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that the first century believers would greet one another with the term Maranatha, meaning Lord, come quickly. Instead of being frightened by the possibility, they clung to it as a culmination of everything they believed. Not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects this intense anticipation. Listen to this. By referencing Jesus' return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John. That is incredible. You may not have realized that the New Testament speaks of the second coming that frequently, but it does. Only two books in the New Testament don't speak in some capacity towards this amazing event that still waits out ahead of us. And it isn't just the New Testament that speaks of the second coming. Usually we think the Old Testament is only directed towards the coming of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus. But there are significant portions of the Old Testament that speak of the events that surround the second coming of Christ. The book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, huge portions of the book of Zechariah are given to the whole idea of Jesus' return. Not just his first coming, but his second coming. It is a huge issue in the Bible. But for some reason, and particularly within the last 40 years, people have stopped giving any thought to it at all. People have stopped thinking about it. People have stopped anticipating it. People have stopped living accordingly because they give no second thought 
to the idea that Jesus will return. And that is tragic. That is tragic. For me, that's never been an issue. I can tell you with 100% accuracy that my life is governed by two things. Number one is the realization that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me, that I might have eternal life, that I might have relationship with him. That is the basis for everything that I believe and everything that I do. And I don't say that boldly. That's the basis for every Christian. God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And then the second thing, and this really has governed the last three decades of my adult life, my entire career, it is understanding that Jesus is coming back and we better make sure that as many people as we can possibly get to the word to hear it and are ready because Jesus is coming back and we have to make sure that that message is out there. Yet a lot of people have lost sight of it, especially in the last 40 years. They've just lost sight of it. You don't hear preachers preach about it. You don't hear teachers teach on the issue. And usually when it comes to the issue of the second coming, as people are reading through scripture, they skip right over it. That is tragic. That is tragic. And maybe you're in one of those groups. You're somebody who just skips over that type of teaching. Or, or maybe you just choose not to give any thought to it whatsoever. And maybe you just don't know why it's important. Well, let me give you 10 things that will help line you up on the issue. It will help you understand the importance of the second coming. Each one of these is from the Bible. Here you go. 10 things every Christian should know about the second coming. It is the church's blessed hope. You can read about that in Titus chapter 2. It is the church's deepest longing. Romans chapter 8. It's the climax of the church's history. Matthew chapter 25. It is a time of redemption for believers. Ephesians 4. It's a time of judgment for God's enemies. 2 Thessalonians. It's the beginning of, the, of Christ's earthly kingdom. Revelation chapter 20. It brings the hope of bodily resurrection, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is a time of spiritual reward, Matthew 25. It was spoken of by angels, Acts chapter 1. And it is guaranteed by Jesus himself, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Why don't we just take a look at that last one because this is so significant. It is guaranteed by Jesus himself. Take a look at this. We'll put it up on the screen. Notice these words are in red. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, they would be in red in your Bible as well. A lot of people fall prey to believing that the only place in the Bible where the words of Jesus are recorded are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not true. Go on through the New Testament, you're going to find several other places with red letters, the words of Jesus. Revelation 22 holds some of those. This is what Jesus says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't you love the boldness that he starts with? And behold, I am coming soon. That is a declaration and one that every one of us should hold on to. Jesus is coming back and he is coming sooner rather than later. We have to hold on to that type of teaching or disastrous things can happen. Peter knew that. That's why he wrote the way he did in his second letter. We've been in a study of First and Second Peter. We're going to wrap that up next week. 
But today, I want you to see what he says about this issue. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. I'll give you just a minute to get there because I want you to see it with your own eyes. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. The apostle, at the point of this writing, the old apostle, pens this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter knew that this subject was important. And so he chose to tell his readers that the whole purpose that he was writing was to stir them up that they might remember it. Something that had settled within them needed to be stirred up so that they would keep it at the forefront of their minds. Look at how he starts this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. Now, why was that so significant? The answer to that question is actually very obvious through both letters. Peter was having to correct some things that false teachers had brought into the church. They were teaching wrong things about Jesus. They were teaching wrong things about the first coming. They were teaching wrong things about who he was. And they were teaching wrong things about his return. So he was having to correct that. But we're not just talking about false teachers at this point. Peter takes it up a notch. He goes to another level, gives them a new name. Did you catch it? Called them scoffers. Twice he used the word scoffer or scoffing. So he gives them their own title, puts them in their own category. You know what a scoffer is? We hear that term a lot where somebody was scoffing at this or scoffing at that. But are you really sure what the word means? Here's a pretty good definition. A scoffer is someone who treats lightly that which ought to be taken seriously. And Peter said, there are some scoffers where the return of Jesus is concerned. People that are scoffing at the idea, taking lightly something that should be taken very seriously, this idea that Jesus will come back as he left. 
They were scoffing at the idea of judgment. They were scoffing at the idea of fulfillment. They were scoffing at the prophecy, both Old Testament and New. So Peter said, you've been listening to them too much, and the idea of the return of Jesus has settled in you, so I'm writing to you to stir it up so that you don't lose sight of it, so that you don't fall prey to the things that they are talking about. Well, one of the the primary reasons that people have forgotten even today about the second coming is tied to this same idea. False teachers and scoffers that have led people away from it. But there are some other things that are happening as well. I really do believe that. And I think one of the reasons that people are not paying attention to the second coming, one of the reasons they're not looking for it and anticipating it is because of something that I refer to as the Eutychus effect. You know what the Eutychus effect is? This is what it looks like. Eutychus effect. You ever heard of it? It's found in Acts chapter 20. Let's go there. Acts chapter 20. Keep your finger in 2 Peter, but join me in Acts 20. Verse 7. Luke's the one who writes these words. He says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That is every preacher's dream. He had a captive audience. They got together, and they wanted to hear what Paul had to say, and he talked, and they didn't want him to stop talking, so he kept talking. Before they knew it, it was midnight. (laughs) Well, no, I'll just leave that alone. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, Luke says. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talks still longer. That's every preacher's nightmare. (laughs) So first he gets the nod, the go-ahead, keep on going, Paul, we want to hear more. And then the next thing he knows, Eutychus is asleep, and it's about to become quite disruptive. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Oh, he had a good wind going. And so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So Paul's preaching. He's, he's just really going strong. Everything is happening the way it's supposed to, and it seems like people are paying attention. But Eutychus got tired. He got sloppy. He fell asleep. I think the Eutychus effect is at work right now. People have heard about the return of Christ, even casually have heard about the return of Christ, but Jesus hasn't come back. And they've gotten tired. And they've gotten sloppy. And a lot have just fallen asleep on the issue, no longer caring about it, no longer watching for it, no longer anticipating it, no longer sharing it. They've fallen out of the window, if you will. Oh, there's reasons that this issue falls off the page the way it does. But in the last 40 years, the effects of people no longer looking for the return of Christ have become quite dramatic and, might I add, alarming. It has become alarming the way people have fallen out of the window on this idea of Jesus' second coming. Preachers have stopped preaching on it. Teachers have stopped teaching on it. And most of the teaching that is shared is false teaching. And then scoffers have taken hold and they said, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, he isn't going to come back. And people have said, yeah, that's the truth. 
And so they've just started doing their own thing. That's really how all of this has happened. A little over a year ago, well, I'm sorry, not over a year ago, back just a few months ago, I read an article that was written just over a year ago, and it was published in Christianity Today. When I read it, I knew this message was coming, and so I just held on to it for today, just to be able to share it with you. But I want to warn you going into it, it's alarming. It is alarming. You're going to hear a term in it that you may have never heard. In fact, after first service, several people came out and said, thank you so much for giving us that term because now we know what's happening with some of the people that are very close to us. Now it's named and we, we have an idea of what to do with it. And if this applies to you or to people that are within your circle, I hope you'll grab hold of it as well. But I do want to warn you, it's alarming. So listen close. I'm going to share almost all of the article with you. I have edited some out just for the sake of time. And this is still a little bit lengthy, but you stay with me as we go through this. Here we go. It is titled, The Decline of Christianity Shows No Signs of Stopping. Daniel Silliman is the one who wrote it September 13th of last year, 2022. This is not some ancient research. This is just over a year old. Pew Research Center isn't ruling out a future religious revival in America, but given the country's steady trends away from faith affiliation, experts don't know what it would look like. Analyzing surveys about religious identity and religious, here's the term, switching, religious switching, going back to 1972 and trying to project the American religious landscape out to the year 2070, they can't even say what demographic signs might indicate a coming swell of conversions. We've never seen this, and we don't have the data to model a religious reversal, Pew Senior Researcher Stephanie Kramer says. There are some who say that revival never happens in an advanced economy. After secularization, you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. But we don't know that. We just don't have the data. The data they do have from 50 years of research by the General Social Survey and Pew's own survey of 15,000 adults in 2019 indicates the current trend is alarming. People are giving up on Christianity. If you're trying to predict the future religious landscape in America, according to Pew, the question is not whether Christianity will decline, it's how fast and how far. In a new study out today, Pew projects that in 2070, Christians will likely make up less than half the U.S. population. Currently, 64% of people say they are Christian, but nearly a third of those raised, eventually, or raised Christian eventually switch to none or nothing in particular, while only about 20% of those raised without religion become Christian. If that ratio of switching continues at a steady pace, then in roughly half a century, only about 40% of Americans will identify as Christian. If the rate of switching continues to accelerate as it has since the 1990s, the percent calling themselves Christians will drop to 35. The rate of change could also slow down. Trends don't tend to continue forever, Kramer said, and there's a prob or there is probably a core of Christians who are committed and are never going anywhere. If the future takes that path, Pew predicts slightly less than 40% of the population will say they are Christian in 2070. Few of the people leaving Christianity appear to be joining other religions. In America today, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and all non-Christian faiths 
account for about 6% of the population. There isn't enough information for researchers to isolate differences between these groups. They project that overall non-Christian faiths will double in America by 2070, mostly by having children and raising them in that religion. The dramatic change, according to Pew, will come with the nuns, people who say they don't have a religious identity. Though many still embrace some Christian beliefs and engage in various spiritual practices, they're projected to rise from about 30% today to as much as 52% in 50 years. Modeling the future of religion in America is a new enterprise for Pew, which has previously focused on landscaping religion in America, not trying to predict where things will go. The picture the study paints, though, is not that different from what Pew and other religion researchers have been saying in recent years. Public Religion Research Institute founder Robert P. Jones wrote an obituary for white Christian America. In 2019, based on changing racial demographics and trends in religious disaffiliation, Gallup started regularly giving people the option of none on a religious preference question in 2008. The number of people giving that answer immediately started increasing. In 2012, Pew reported that nuns were on the rise, prompting scores of analysis on the phenomenon. Ryan Burge, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University, wrote in his 2021 book, The Nuns, that there was a time when the religiously unaffiliated appeared to be no more than a rounding error. But then they zoomed past 10% of the population by 1996, crossed the 15% threshold a decade later, and managed to reach 20% by 2014. When he downloaded the raw data from the General Social Survey in 2018, the unaffiliated roughly equaled Catholics and Evangelicals in size. Pew's new report does, however, clearly identify the mechanism driving the change. By isolating different demographic factors, shocking many, it shows that declining Christian birth rates and non-Christian immigrants are not the significant causes. The main reason is, here's that word again, switching. Christians deciding that they're not Christians anymore. This mostly happens to people between the ages of 15 and 29, according to the report, with an additional 7% of Christians disaffiliating from the faith after the age of 30. Switching out has been happening steadily, which didn't used to happen, Kramer told Christianity Today. It used to be that if you met someone on the street and their father and mother were Christian, then they were Christian too. For about a third of the people, that's not true anymore. Pew does not have a theory about why more people are switching. The research center focuses on the data, leaving explanations to others. Some, however, building on the work of the late sociologist Rodney Stark, have argued its cause by denominations growing more liberal. According to this argument, if a church emphasizes all the same issues and concerns as left-leaning political activists, then there's no reason to do the extra work of belonging to a church. They point to shrinking mainline churches. For example, the United Church of Christ, the first mainline denomination to embrace same-sex marriage, lost more than 40% of its members in the 17 years after that decision. Others have connected the trend to conservative politics, arguing evangelical association with Republicans is driving young people away from church. The rise of the ex-evangelical movements and the uptick in the number of nuns in some election years is cited as evidence. It could be that both the left and the right are having this effect. 
But Kramer cautions that the trend in the U.S. appears similar to what researchers have seen in other countries, where the political landscape looks completely different. Perhaps it's not the decisions of churches driving the change, but broader social developments. Many sociologists, going back to Max Weber, have argued that secularization is inevitable as society advances. Globalization, industrialization, and technology make it harder and harder for people to believe. The biggest change that's visible today, though, isn't really a rapid change in beliefs, but affiliations. Atheists remain in the single digits in the U.S., but while many nuns affirm the existence of God and even pray, they don't want to be connected to a religious group or identity. We don't know what all is driving this, Kramer said. There are some theories that make sense, but we don't know. As the researchers charted the possible paths for the future, they tried to keep in mind what they didn't know and the data they didn't have. Extrapolating from trends doesn't account for the kind of dramatic events that shape generations. It is possible, the report says, that events outside the model, such as war, economic depression, climate crisis, changing immigration patterns, or religious innovation could reverse the trends. Revival could happen. There's just nothing in the current data that indicates it will. That's alarming. Part of the problem, at least as I see it, for what's causing some of that trend is the fact that people have settled too much. They have settled too much on the idea of the second coming, the return of Jesus. They've gotten tired and sloppy and fallen asleep. And this switching idea is demonstrating people that are falling out the window. They're tired of waiting on the return of Christ and, and not seeing it happen. So they've just given up on Jesus all the way around. They're switching from Christian to nuns. Nuns. I have no affiliation whatsoever. Even though they were taught and they were trained in the things of God, they have so settled on the fact that Jesus is coming back that they have just drifted from the faith, fallen asleep and drifted from the faith. But here's what I'd like to tell those researchers. There's some information available that we can hold on to that will show us that what seems so alarming doesn't have to be because God is still doing some things. God is still God. And they have forgotten some things. And as we get into that, let me tell you this. The church in America, though yes, in many places it is shrinking just as they said. Their statistics are accurate. There are a lot of places that are thriving. They are thriving and the gospel is thriving. Libby Christian Church is an example of a, a church that is thriving with a focus on evangelism and seeing people come to know Christ. And there are many other churches that are thriving just like that. It's as a whole that you see some of this shrinking and the switching that's going on. But there are places that are, are nothing but wonderful evidence of the fact that God is alive and well and He is moving and He is calling people unto Himself. And so Peter said, I'm going to stir you up on this issue so that you'll get it back out in front of people and you'll keep it there so that they'll remember some things. And that's the data that I'd like to give these researchers. I'd like to remind them who God is because it is who God is that will change the trend. It is who God is that will bring about the end that God desires. It is because of who God is that we can see what he's doing. So, Peter in 
2 Peter chapter 3 gave them a couple things to think about. Let's go back and take a look at that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he starts with this. For they deliberately overlooked this, listen, fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Fact number one, we have to remember who God is and what he has done in the past. Now we remember that biblically, but folks, you remember that personally too. You remember who God is and what he has done in your life. You remember who God is and it will keep the the truth of his second coming welling up inside of you, stirred up inside of you. You look backwards to the fact, this is who God is. He is the creator of the universe who loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. Fact, fact that everyone who believes in him will receive eternal life and an eternal relationship with him. Fact, fact. But once we understand that, if you want to keep all of this stirred up inside of you, there's another fact to pay attention to. Also found in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is verse 8. But do not overlook this one, here it is, fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The researchers were forgetting the eternal nature of who God is. If we look back and we see what he has done, it will open our eyes to who he is. And when we can understand who God is in some of the things that are difficult to wrap our minds around, even some of that alarming research becomes less so because we know who God is. And here's what I mean by that. God is not bound by the temporal. He is bound by the eternal. And Peter helps us understand that by saying, with the Lord one day is a thousand, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God dwells in the eternal. You know what that means? You know what that means? Here it is. Eternity is existence above and apart from time. God's not bound by the same things we are. He uses them. He uses time, but he is not bound by it. And sometimes we see demonstrations of God's patience while he is accomplishing his purpose. And even the the longer we go before the return of Christ actually happens, one thing that we can trust is that God is accomplishing his purpose. Here's some examples of that. He could have created the universe in an instant. He preferred to do it over a period of six days. He could have delivered Israel from Egypt in a moment. He preferred to invest 80 years in training Moses. He could have sent the Savior much sooner, but he waited until the fullness of time had come. There is a a certain element of God's eternal nature that shows us his eternal patience for a purpose. And in this particular regard, the longer we wait for the return of Christ, the purpose as it is laid out by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 is nothing short of salvation. That every, every repentant sinner will have opportunity to come to him and know him. The reason the second coming hasn't happened yet is because God says, I have more grace to pour out. He's pouring it out as he waits for people to come and know him. Which helps us understand what the return of Christ really hinges on. 
We are living in what the Bible refers to as the times of the Gentiles. The Gospel of Luke actually uses that term. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. Since the book of Acts, about halfway through the book of Acts, God has turned his attention to the Gentiles, to us. And he's brought salvation to us. And we're living during those times. It's also called the church age. We're living during the church age. But there is a moment coming when all of that will change. Take a look at Romans chapter 11, verse 25 with me. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. People will ask at times how it is that Israel and the Jewish people as a whole, not as individuals, but as a whole, how it is that they cannot recognize Jesus as Messiah. Well, right there's your answer. A partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, you might wonder what the fullness of the Gentiles is. It's a number known only to God. When a predetermined number of Gentiles have become Christian, then the church is taken out of here. The rapture, what we've been looking at with Dr. David Jeremiah in Sunday school, it happens and God turns his attention back to the Jewish people. And there's a seven-year period known as the tribulation, which if you read about it in scripture, is not a great time. Just think of the title, tribulation. But God's attention is turned back to the Jewish people. 144,000 sealed Jews will be carrying the gospel message to their own kind. Moses and Elijah will come back into Jerusalem and they will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and it will be seen all around the world. We live in a time where we can understand that prophecy and how it would happen and God's attention will be turned to the Jews. But what predates that is the fullness of the Gentiles. When that number is met, whew, church is gone. Church is gone. And we start to see some of that prophecy fulfilled. So Peter says, I want to stir this up in you. I want to stir this up in you. If it's been settled in you and, and you haven't thought about it, I want to stir it up in you because that'll lead you to you doing your part. Living in such a way that the message is presented to those around you. Living in such a way that the gospel becomes the message of your life. Stir it up within you. And for those of you that have not made a first-time decision for Jesus to stir up the idea of the second coming, redirects you to the first coming so that you can understand who he is. You can give your life to the Lord, be obedient in baptism, and you might just be the fulfillment of the fullness of the Gentiles, and we're all out of here. How cool is that? How cool is that? So the second coming is stirred up within us. It's stirred up within us. And Peter says, keep it out in front of you. Don't lose sight of it. Don't let it settle. Don't get tired and lazy and sloppy as you're waiting. Do what you're supposed to do. Stay faithful. Stay faithful and keep it stirred up within you that it might stir up within other people. Because fact, God is who he is and he has done what he has done. And fact, he is patiently awaiting the time until he returns. And he said, behold, I'm coming soon. Fact. So all we have to do is hold on to that and live accordingly. And we can turn the tide of trends that 
researchers are trying to follow and show them what a thriving church looks like. Pretty awesome when it happens. Very awesome when it happens. I was thinking about how if I had been an editor of of translations of Scripture, how I would have titled this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, what, what would I have put over as a heading? It would have been this. Make no mistake about it. That's how I would have titled it. You hear people use that term all the time, make no mistake about it. But have you ever followed the ideology of that to actually know what it means? We use it in conversation, but do you know what it means? Here it is. Make no mistake about it. It means that you should understand clearly. That's what it means. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. So do what you need to do. If you've never given your life to him, don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. Because when the church is taken out of here, tribulation begins. Oh, you might still be here. Might still be here. Might still be here. And be able to make a decision. That, that could happen. But those are tough years. Why not just desire to be in his presence? Because folks, that's really what salvation is. It's a desire to be in his presence. And that's really what salvation is. Being in the presence of the Lord. We give our life to him and we always think that that means heaven and that means eternity. And it does. There's no question about that. But it means relationship. I have relationship with the creator of the universe and the savior of the world. And it starts the moment I give my life to him and it lasts forever. It lasts forever. And God gives us that long to get to know him. Forever. That's how long it takes. Forever. And we get that as the free gift of salvation. Oh, Jesus is coming back. You make sure you're ready. And share that message with other people. Why don't you stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm grateful that you stir this up within us. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us keep it ever stirred up. And would you help us do the same for other people? So that they can see who you are and understand how much you love them. Father, right now I'm praying for those that the need to understand that. Would you let that happen today? If there's been a partial veil in their life, would you lift it and let them see it? And I pray, Lord, that they will experience the miraculous and the remarkable from this moment forward. Father, if there are others that just need to stir it up within the hearts and lives of their loved ones, I pray they will. I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a prayer room. Why don't you use it today? If you need to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, do that today. If you need to talk about a relationship with the church, do that today. If you want to pray with somebody about something going on in your life or the life of someone close to you, do that today. Respond to the invitation. The prayer room will be open long after church is closed. Use the prayer room. Raina? I like what Dr. David Jeremiah said this morning in the video at Sunday school. He said, I want to be proud when Jesus comes. I want Jesus to be proud of me when he comes back again. 
I want Christ to be proud of me when he comes back in and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. This morning, if you have had any questions with what Phil talked about, if you want to pray for someone in your family for their salvation, or you have some doubts, we just want to encourage you to go over to the prayer room right after this service is over and go pray or talk with someone. We also want to wish you just a blessed Thanksgiving. We hope you have a wonderful time with your friends and family. See you later.